Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Daniele Bolelli from History on Fire podcast. It is my honor and pleasure to introduce this episode of Fan of History. Join us for a journey as we go back to the great civilizations of the past. Who were the people? What were they like? How did they begin and how did they end? Let's find out on Fan of History. Yeah, so how about that? We have a little... We have a guest intro person there, one of my other favorite Dan podcasters, Janelli Bellelli. I helped him do a, uh, I helped him do a podcast on the siege of Jerusalem. Of course, I use a lot of fan of history materials in there, and a lot of Gary's materials, and I think it came out pretty good. So, if you guys check that out, was it the five eight to seven siege? No, the seven oh one siege. So I used oh, a lot of the notes Sennacherib. you gave me. Yes, and Acrib and everything. So basically, the the concept is there was a a, a book written, you know, years ago about what ifs in history. And one of the chapters was what if, you know, the Jerusalem fell to the Assyrians at the time. And basically, you know, there probably be no Christianity, no Judaism and no Islam. Hmm. Interesting. We, we will try to put that episode in our feed and hopefully when you hear this, we have already succeeded. Yes, hopefully. But when you do hear it, you'll, you'll really hear a lot of the fingerprints of fan of history. Like, like, you know, TP3 and stuff like that. I used a lot of Dan's. I wasn't doing the podcast then, so Dan shared his notes with me. And I used a lot of those, and I did. It was good. It was good for me, too, to go back into, um, you know, get a little bit more background before the 680s when I started. It's been uh, eight years soon for the Final History Project. Eight years with the Assyrian Empire. We are so close to its ultimate destruction. Oh. <laughs> and it's an epic destruction. There is... So little left when they're done. But we'll talk about that in the next decade. Because now we're going to talk about the 20s. Exactly, the 20s. What happened in the 20s? It was, a, it was the roaring 20s, right? We're in the 20s now. But 
<laughs> Back in the yeah. Flappers, prohibitions, gangsters. So much fun until the stock market crashed in 29. Depression. Well, that is what we're heading for. Oh, no. Now we're going to talk about the 620s BC. Thank goodness. And I hope the 620, well, I hope that, I don't know what to say about the 20s coming so far. We'll just have to see when it's the 20s of our 20s. I mean, we'll have to see how they end up. But we will know how these 20s end up at the end of these episodes, right? I think we're going to have a lot to talk about. Actually, I'm thinking about the, the current 20s and uh, how, like the 1920s, it starts with a pandemic and then maybe we'll have a depression and then we get Hitler. Oh, damn. Oh. <laughs> Let's hope not. Oh, my gosh. But you know what? It's uh, oof. I can't even. Let's okay, back not. to the 620s. Yeah, back to we'll live in our little bubble of the 620s. <laughs> so, um. Yeah, I found this. I like to start the episodes with some little housekeeping stuff. So I found this when I was doing the research. Just a little, it's a little as our, it's a little Asher Banapal quote. So just real quick, it says, "As for, I'm going to leave these names out because they're all just big names. As for these guys, sons of the governor of Nipper, whose father, the one who had engendered them, had stirred up Urtaku to fight with the land of Akkad, the bones." Of this guy's father, they had taken out of the land of Gambulu to Assyria. I made them, it's literally his sons, I made his sons crush those bones opposite the citadel gate of Nineveh. So, if you remember, there was some of the quotes, may your children grind your bones for bread. So literally, he took the bones, made his kids grind them in public. So it actually happened. Yeah. He's kind of a badass. Um, that was the thing with the, with the, um, with the treaties, though, where they made all that weird stuff, then they would actually make you make it happen. Like we saw that happen with the Arabs in the 640s when they did all those atrocities. Any more housekeeping? Yeah, just I think, well, this will move us into the episode, actually, too, because um, I found this really cool um, story about this leather scale armor that was found way out in China. Um, it was actually found in Turpan, China. Which is to the north, very close to Mongolia. Correct. It's four thousand kilometers, kilometers from from Nineveh. So, twenty five hundred miles. So that's pretty far, and it's basically neo Assyrian armor. What is it doing in China? Well, nobody really knows, but it's well, for one thing, we really shows that. There was a lot of um, contact, you know, east to west, even if it wasn't, you know, the guy, maybe the guy didn't come all the way from there. We, we really don't know. I mean, possibly it did. I mean, that the um, the steps were like a highway, super highway, but it could have, you know, passed its way along, you know, hand to hand because it was a very uh, effective armor. You know, the scale, it was made out of scales. It was leather. So it's um, it was easier to make, too. So there was more of them. They think maybe, you know, it was like a industrial type scale production for this armor for you know the Syrian soldiers and maybe this guy worked with was a Scythian maybe he was an auxiliary maybe the armor passed along but it's it's pretty interesting that it's that far away from from Assyria all the way out in China right amazing yeah so this armor is cool it's like a waistcoat it protects the front of the torso the hips the side and the lower back of the body but the thing is, it could just you could put it on yourself, and it fits different people. So, well, you don't need a, a squire or whatever they would call them back then. 
to you know help you out. Nice. And there's one other armor like this in the Met, and it's a pretty similar. So, I mean, that's really cool that that's so far away. I can imagine it getting preserved in the arid climate in the rain shadow of the Himalayas. Right. Because it's so dry north of all those mountains. And could you imagine, too, how many they must have made of those? And it's the only one that really lasted because they took it all the way out there. Wow. Kind of shows you can't hide from history either. Like when people try to like make up crazy history stuff, the, the stuff is there. You know, <laughs> we we find some things. Should we mention the horn hem- helmet as well? We could, yeah. We should talk about the horn. We could talk about the horn helmet now too, for sure. Um, it's an old old myth that the Vikings had horned helmets, but of course they didn't. But here is a horned helmet from Denmark. Yeah. But did, did you know, I don't know, it's funny that I saw it because I was watching, um, so I happen, just happened to be, before I saw that, I was watching videos on you know, YouTube, probably one of size videos, some artwork, and that looks exactly like a helmet from Sardinia. And it's like 2,000 years before the Vikings. Exactly. So that, to me, that shows, if you remember the episode I, we did with um, Rob Mailheimer, the, um, about the Phoenicians being in that area. Um, yes, it really show you know that these were the that's the Phoenicians were in Sardinia too and Carthage and all that so the Punics I should say so they're Phoenicians Carthaginians same same type of you know that's where they said the language came from there so if they found helmets there from Sardinia to me that's sort of that's a leather um, notch and saying you know that sounds like a good theory that's from 900 BC yeah oh 900 BC so that's before Carthage. Yeah, but not before the Phoenicians. I will talk a bit about the uh, Carthaginian expansion and Phoenician expansion in uh, in this decade. Well, I know we will. We are get, getting closer to Hanno the Navigator. That's going to be a cool story. All right, uh, back to the 620s. So I just I, I kind of merge in the, Scyth- the Scythians here because they're going to really come come out in the 610s, but it's not like they came out of nowhere. You know, they they've okay. been around. Yeah, they've been around, and it's so hard to track them. It is, because they don't really have cities, per se. And I will tell you, if you, I started looking up in Herodotus, he covers them like, wow, he's a lot of stuff on the Scythians in there. The Scythians were badasses, too. I'll tell you that. But uh, Herodotus is uh, a problematic source. He is, he is. And it must have been, it must have been, you know, sort of a um, dramatic type of story, you know, to talk, to talk about. But, you know, if you read between the lines, I'm sure there's a lot of truth in it. You know, obviously the stuff about founded by Hercules and stuff like that. But I like this, what he says. He says something about, he's talking about Darius, you know, coming to um, fight them. And he says, the Scythian race has in that matter, which of all human affairs is the greatest import made by the cleverest discovery we know. I praise not the Scythians in all respects, but in this greatest manner they have found, they have so devised that none who attacks them can escape, and none can catch them if they desire not to be found. For when men have no established cities or fortresses, but are all house-bearers and mounted archers, living by not tilling the soil, but by cattle-rearing and carrying their dwellings on wagons, how should these not be invincible and unapproachable? I mean, that's true, obviously. They're horse nomads, and they were tough. You know, it's hard to fight them. I think it's uh, difficult to discern who, who the Scythians are in Herodotus' day. But uh, 
we know that the Scythians uh, made a pact with Asher Panipal mm-hmm. and that they are his uh, allies until 625 mm-hmm. when they are overthrown by the Medes. Mm-hmm. And they have, or have a kingdom for like 25 years based, or if you can call it a kingdom, an area uh, at the southern shore of Lake Ermia in Iran. But uh, they are hard to grasp. They were, you know, they were like a people. You'd have to say, you know, they weren't like all, you know, one mass, you know, group. But you know what I think? I read this really. I was started reading this really interesting little book. It's a little odd. It's called "The Rise of the Centaurs." It's an it's an odd little book, and the guy talks about how like, you know, these horse nomads really became one with the horse over time, where. I mean, they literally just ride a horse, and the horse. In other words, the horse and the person are one. So you can see where the where the where the myth of the centaur comes. But I mean, these these guys could ride these horses, and just by moving their leg a certain way and turn, they could. The horse and the person were one in the way they would move. And you know, he really. This guy's a horse person too, so he describes the physiology of it too. Like horse have a, a bundle of nerves on their back, and so that's sort of how they connect, almost like Avatar, you know, where they connect. Remember how an avatar where they like connect with the animals and they're like one sort of like that. Yeah. So all these peoples who lived in the steppes, you know, maybe Herodotus called them Scythians, but there are different. He does list different ones and there's the royal Scythians and the other Scythians and uh, historians today when they do DNA studies, they don't they're not really a, the same race, so to speak, of people. And so what the guy in this book mentioned, talks about, and it could be true. A lot of people sort of joined groups like that. You know, like if they were on your, you were a farmer and you said, I hate this city life. I want to live the life of a nomad. They, they would go with them. <laughs> and that's how they kind of, you know, they, um, they, they're they not at the same exact race, you know. So you have like Iranians here in the West and you have more, you know, Asian type races. I hate to use that word, but, you know, in the, out in the East, but they're all like horse nomads living in tough badasses. So, you know, when they came to your city, you were, you know, you had an issue. You sure did. <laughs> but I think the attack on Egypt is real. We'll yeah. talk more about that later. Yeah, because when, when Ashurbanipal uh, dies, the grip on the Scythians uh, changes. They seem to be uh, all over the place raiding. Yeah. In small groups, I guess. Small groups. And what else is important, I know I want to miss, uh, miss, is that this is why the Sumerians are causing so much trouble over all these years, because it's the Scythians that are pushing the Sumerian, the Cimmerians, and they're moving them into Anatolia. And so they're attacking Phrygia and those Greek cities and, you know, Dugdami's out there and all this stuff is happening because there's this pressure, which is such a classic in history. I mean, it's the fall of the Roman Empire. You go into the Mongols. I mean, they just start pushing the, and then, you know, things start happening. And with poor Urartu in the middle. Urartu always gets screwed when it was Urartu or Mania, whatever it is there. <laughs> That's a story. Um, yeah, Herodotus, you know, he does, he's, Herodotus says that maybe the, the same dynasty ruled in Scythia through most of its history, but it's possible. But I tell you, if you look up their burials and stuff, like they were, you know, like if you were a king and you died, they killed a bunch of your, you know, friends and people around you and your wife maybe your horses, and they buried you all together like that. They blinded their slaves. I mean, they're, oof, <laughs> some tough stuff in there. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Scythians will appear again in this episode about the 620s. 
Yes. And, you know, another thing I just the last to say is like um, about the horse nomads. They did spend a lot of time reading. It's like at first they had the chariots. But a few hundred years before this time is when they really, I believe, started to ride horses. But by, you know, and then the Assyrians and the city people try to learn how to ride horses. But they weren't quite as good as the, you know, the Scythians. Um, but this is when. So, you know, you're a couple hundred years of, you know, into horse riding. But the, the cities are just, you know, sort of switching from chariots to cavalry at this point. Because the, the Scythians are really good at horses. You know, not just um, chariots. So. That's all I have to say about the Scythians at the moment. All right. And we're going to mention that uh, Sappho was born in 630 BC. Yes. The great poet. Mm-hmm. But we'll we'll talk more about her in the like the 590s. Yes, we can do when that. She's starting to uh, write some stuff. It's hard. It's hard. We will. I just smile. One thing I'd say is I would try to read the poems, and if, when they don't rhyme, I think it's hard. Probably if I knew Greek, it'd be better. <laughs> <laughs> We have another birth, though. Another famous name you might know is Aesop. Aesop, the the, the fable writer, not the uh, skincare company, which I found when I was Googling. Okay. You know about Aesop's tales, right? Aesop's fables? Oh, tell me. Oh, you know, like the tortoise and the hare. Oh, that's that stuff. Yeah, sour grapes and, you know, all those stories. Those are Aesop's, Aesop's fables. So he was supposedly born around now. Like 620. Yeah, like around 620. There's all these different... He was, um, he's, could we talk about him even though he's just born? Yeah, let's talk about him. So there's, you know, we have the information we have about him is he's, he's somewhat mythical, maybe, you know, maybe expand on it, but it's called the ASAP Romance. And um, it's an anonymous work, so we don't really even know who wrote it. But there's, um, yeah, so in this, in this. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Since 2013, Bombus has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Story, he's a slave from Phrygia. Um, He's a Phrygian of origin, and he's a slave on the island of Samos, and he's extremely ugly. And at first, he lacks the power of speech. But after showing kindness to a priestess of Isis, he's granted not only the gift of speech, but for clever storytelling, which he uses um, alternately to assist and confound his master, who's a philosopher, and he embarrasses him in front of his students. And then he even sleeps with his wife, which is, uh, yeah, cuckolded him, as they say. (laughs) So um, 
I, to me, it shows it doesn't matter if you're ugly, if you got a good game, if you know, if you could tell a good story, go for good old uh, Aesop. So what happened is then he, he interpreted, a, you know, important for the people of Samos, and he's given his freedom. And then he acts as an emissary for the Samians and King Croesus, Croesus. And then later in the story, he travels to the court of Lysurgus of Babylon and Nectbatano of Egypt, which are both imaginary. And you, you guys all know that, I'm sure. Uh, I don't recognize those names. Yeah, that's just a fake story there. And then it ends with he visits, he takes a journey to Delphi where he angers all the citizens by telling insulting fables, is sentenced to death, and after cursing the people of Delphi, is forced to jump to his death. Maybe he uh, revealed the great scam of the oracle. Maybe he did. Maybe he did. I, I can't think of an ironic ending to his thing right at the moment, you know, sour grapes, uh, tortoise in the hair bunch of his stories i know when i was a kid did you guys have them when we were kids we always heard asap's fables so like the cartoons and stuff yes yes we did now i remember yeah right <laughs> well this is where he started he was born in 620 okay right we had another another like birth but i don't think this is true but i think we could talk about this anyway because it's going to be important um and it's somebody i read it said commonly accepted date of the birth of zoroaster I don't know what commonly means, because after lots of research, um, Zoroaster was probably born way longer than that. Have you heard of Zoroastrianism? Oh, yes. Remember Dr. Evil? No. Remember what he said? <laughs> what did he say? Well, he, in, his, in his monologue with, with, with Carrie Fisher, when he was saying, you know, the, the story of my life is inconsequential. At one point he says, at the age of 14, a Zoroastrian named Vilma ritualistically shaved my testicles. <laughs> oh. So that's maybe a lot of people's only uh, knowing of Zoroaster and Zoroastrianism. But Zoroastrianism is really um, a very influential religion from Iran. And actually, you know, when the Persians take over the world or the Near East anyway, you'll see that the Greeks start getting, you know, these concepts of, of Zoroastrianism, which I'll tell you about. The, um, the, the Jews do. It gets into the Bible. So... Um, even like in the in the 17th century, I'm sorry, yeah, the 1700s, the 1600s, Nietzsche, Mozart, Voltaire, Voltaire even said that Zoroaster is the prophet best associated with the Age of Enlightenment. So he he's probably, if he's even a real person, he's probably was way before. But the thing is, right, why it may come up now is because, you know, maybe the religion was just like a lot of the other religions were getting written down now, and this one wasn't being written down now, but being expanded. And, you know, the Medes were exempt, were becoming more of a group. So this religion starts to be more well-known. So this Zoroaster was in, let's pretend he was born in the 600s, just to say what he was. You know, he was um, an Iranian prophet. So he, so, so here's, here's what his teachings were. He challenged the existing traditions of the, of the Indo-Iranian religion at the time. And he inaugurated a movement that eventually became the dominant religion in Persia. So his language was Old Avistan, and he lived in the eastern part of the Iranian uh, plateau. He, you know what? They're, so their symbol is fire. And this, this, this religion kind of reminds me of the Lord of Light and the Red Priestess, and you know, on the Game of Thrones, because he totally takes all this stuff from history. So they basically was a dualistic religion. They had um, a good God and a bad God, like a God and Satan. So like in the ancient religions of you know, Greek religions and the 
at the time, you know, our 600s here in Mesopotamia, in Judah, they, they really didn't have that kind of thing. It wasn't like God wasn't really good. He was just sort of like you had to give him sheep and, you know, pour, give him libations and all the different gods just so that they wouldn't mess you up. But these guys had a really much more interesting uh, religion. They had, you know, more like we would see it now where where the main god, his name is Ahura Mazda. And actually the Mazda car company comes from that. So Ahura Mazda is the good god and the bad god, his name is Angra Manu. So Ahura Mazda to, is, there's a, there's a spiritual battle basically going on in the world and between good and evil. And human beings are a part of the spiritual battle by doing good deeds and thinking good thoughts and cultivating their mind, which is really interesting too, is that, um, they, the Zoroastrian religion doesn't, wasn't discriminatory against women and they were against slavery too, because how could a person, um, you know, increase their mind, improve their mind if they're a slave? And a woman is a person, so it's not, there was no problem with that. Does this mean the Persians have no slaves? You know, that's hard to say. I would imagine, I, I was thinking that, as I said it, so, but um, they probably did, but it would have been technically against their, you know, Zoroastrian religion. It will play very much into our story much later that uh, anybody who follows this religion is absolutely forbidden to lie and will not lie under any circumstance. There you go. Yeah, it's like anything with religion. They get sometimes they get like, well, they'll they'll make a reason to have slaves, but you still can't lie. And they, you know, then they started getting some angels and some extra gods. But the basic of the religion is that, you know, you prove your mind. You you're fighting good against evil. Um, but there, then there is like a messiah messianic um, aspect to it, which is then that also comes into Judaism around this. You know, after the Persian, um, after the Persian conquest, and they you know let them back out, and they spend all that time in Babylon, etc. A virgin birth of a savior will come. That sounds familiar, right? Yes. Apocalyptic thinkings, like I said, Satan, all these things. So, and um, I would, if you're interested in this, I would say to the listeners, check it out. There's some good YouTube videos. Um, Zoroastrian is very interesting. We should probably mention the name Zarathustra as well for Zoroaster because I think that name is more known, at least to me. I should have said that. I missed that part. But yes, that is his. That would be his. His name is Zarathustra. And the Greeks' name is Zoroaster. Yes. So that's Zoroastrianism and Zoroaster. Like I say, he was probably born way long if he even existed. But this is the this is the time when you started hearing more about it if you were lived in the six twenty. So at exactly the same time as the Jews are liberated from Babylon, in the next century, they will uh, learn about uh, an evil force. Yes. Uh, they will learn about the virgin birth of a savior and yes. apocalyptic thinking. Hmm, interesting. Yes. Yes. You know, coincidentally, then, you know, soon after a new religion is born out of all that. <laughs> and it's the religion of Cyrus the Great. Yeah, it is. Um, but the slavery thing, I will, I, I have to say, I'm going to have to get back to everybody on, because now I'm really interested in finding out what the Persians said about slavery. Yeah, we'll get to talk a lot about Persians and their religion in the future. For sure. I do think it's cool, the Mazda logo, too, because their logo, the, the if you look up the Persian... You know, you see that symbol of like the wing with the head, you know, the, the winged symbol. That's really the Mazda symbol. If you really think of it, it's just sort of, you know, graphically made. But that's where it comes from. Okay. Interesting. Where should we go now? I, I do have this other little. It's uh, it's actually, if you if you remember in Cambridge Ancient History, they go on and on about Necrotus. Well, let's talk about Necrotus. Yeah. I'm sure you know about it, too. Because, boy, they really talk a lot about it. 
But this is when Greeks, the Greeks begin to colonize this, it's called Necrotus, it's in the delta of Egypt. And it's like a trading post. This is uh, such a great deal. Of course, the Egyptians don't like the delta. The Greeks like uh, the Mediterranean. Um, the delta is close to the Mediterranean. It's an island. The Greeks like islands. Win-win. It's a win-win situation. <laughs> and Sanitikus loves his Greek mercenaries. Yes. He loves Greeks. He's a Greekophile, as they say. If you remember, and they, they say how, like, even, you know, the Greeks knew about Egypt and they had gone to Egypt. But they weren't as, at this, you know, after the Bronze Age collapse, there was sort of, they weren't there as much. Imagine that the Phoenicians were, as we know. But the Egyptians were, you know, they're a funny lot. They, so like one, sometimes they say they could just land in a ship. The Greeks were kind of pirates before they started becoming traders. They would just sort of land there and just grab a bunch of people. And they say they really didn't fight back. So that's kind of interesting. But then eventually they said, why don't we just give you guys this island? So you stop stealing our people. And of course, the immense wealth of Egypt. Right. The land and where you get to for, uh, what's the English word? Uh, when you uh, do agriculture. Farming? Yes, and you get uh, your, when you plow, you get the, oh, the stuff. But in Egypt, you get the stuff four times a year. You're right. And it's, you know, it's a crossroads there too, of course. And, and the thing is about this, it became very cosmopolitan for Greeks. It was like, you know, you could be fighting different. The Greeks, as we know, weren't just like Greece. It was they were, they fought each other like crazy and different languages and everything, different dialects anyway. But they um, they all sort of came there, sort of like in Shanghai, you know, when the Germans and the British and the French were all like in this one trading city. That's kind of how um, Necrotus got to be like. And it sort of, and the reason of Semiticus and the, the dynasty, the, 25th dynasty pharaohs were very Greekophile. They like Greeks. So they would hire them as mercenaries. And The 26th. What did I say? 25th? 26th, yes, I meant. 26th. 25th are the Nubians. That's right. Thank God for Dan. Keeps me in line. <laughs> <laughs> um, they, but so they, their, their capital was at Sais. So basically, Necrotus became their port because Sais didn't have a port. Hmm. It was close, too. It was like 10 miles, which is, what's that, like six kilometers? 16. Oh, 16, right. It goes the other way. <laughs> but yeah, so this is when the Greeks really started. You know, the, we knew the Greeks started coming in with um, Gyges and his and his Carians and then some Greeks. And it must be amazing how that armor and their way of fighting was just such a, you know, like you, know, you just get a, one band of mercenaries and these guys could kick, take care of everything. Yeah. I think that's the armor thing, to be honest with you. Like you always see these pictures of Egyptians and they're like, you know, in, in the battles, they're like they got like a waist, they got like a loincloth on or something. And then you think of an Egyptian, you think of a Greek, you know, hobwhite, just armored. I mean, you know, you're a martial artist. Imagine if you could go against a fight against a guy, and you could wear like full headgear, a full like you know the full padded thing, you know, like completely padded, and let the guy hit you as hard as he wants. You're gonna kill him, yes. even if he's a bigger and better, right? So that's I. It's, it's, I I really re realize like armor is so important. If you had good armor, man, you could. Anything else on the Kratos did you like to add? Well, uh, the Pharaoh got his share as well of the trading mm -hmm. and charged a 10% tax. Yep. I also thought about Herodotus here that you can see in his writings that uh, the Greeks are really, they really think Egypt is the cradle of civilization and this ancient kingdom that they have so much respect for. Yeah. So I think this is this is truly a win-win situation for Egypt yeah. and the Greeks. And, and it's true. Just think about how the world now is getting to like integrated and how these ideas are 
you know, touching each other, even if one person from all the way in China is not talking to an Egyptian, these things are like, you know what I mean? They're mixing together in, in a way that that's, you know, it's not happening. You know, in the Americas, they, they don't know any of this stuff because they're not talking to any of those people because there's a complete ocean between them. But even the vast distances from China to Egypt and Greece and Mesopotamia, there's definitely contacts and trading and all this kind of stuff. Imagine the surprise of the Nubians when Samedicus comes with his Greek mercenaries. Seriously. Yeah, they're like uh, playing Egypt down there in Nubia and suddenly Greek mercenaries show up. Yeah, right? You're shooting arrows at them, just like bouncing off them, boink, boink, boink. <laughs> okay, if we talk about Greeks, we have to talk about new colonies, right? Yeah, we got a new colony. We always have a new colony. So yeah, they're spreading all over the place. I was thinking, I one night I was, I write this as I go a lot of times. I read and I just go and I write something so I don't forget. And I thought, oh, here's just a little colony, whatever. But like, this is like the biggest thing these people did in their whole lives. They like left their houses and moved to a whole new place. So it was a big deal to them. Um, so anyway, this new colony is called Epidamnos. It's also known as Duris. It's in... It's in Albania, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's in 627, Greek colonists from Corsica and Corinth. They, they, it's not that far, you know, it's like 617 kilometers from Corinth, but it's only 287 kilometers from Corsera, which is Corfu today. And it's going to become part of the kingdom of Pyrrhus. Yes, you're right. It does. It does become the part of the kingdom of Pyrrhus. And you know what else is interesting about this little, uh, um, colony is that it's Cora. I'm sorry, it's Corsera and Corinth to have an argument over it that causes the Peloponnesian War. Oh, no. Boom. Again. <laughs> Something from our deck, from our time is like, yeah, guess what? This started a whole other thing. So what happened is they, in Aristotle's politics, he uses examples of the government here because um, it was a tightly it was run as a tight oligarchy and tradesmen and craftsmen were excluded from power. And then there was some wars and some, you know, civil war, and then they got a more democratic government. So then these exiled oligarchs appealed to Corsera, and the Democrats appealed to Corinth. And that's the struggle that started, and then thus the Peloponnesian War. Oh, we do have a few episodes to go until the Peloponnesian War. I think so. So I think we may end this episode. All right, we didn't even talk about Ashurbanipal. No, well, we're gonna we're like saving the best for last, I think. Even though we killed him in the last decade, we'll yeah. kill him again in this decade. <laughs> yes. Make him more dead. What did he say the one time? I'm making him even more dead. <laughs> <laughs> Deader than disco. <laughs> and that too. Poor Abba. Okay, well, let, maybe we'll talk about him next time. Maybe, maybe. There's still a lot of other stuff. I got some China stuff in here. You know, I'm kind of getting into the China stuff. Oh, great. All right, so, uh, you know, fans, please do check the Facebook page. And the Patreon. Yeah, Bernie just lost. Bernie just got a cut and pay at his work. He needs the Patreon. <laughs> he needs help. <laughs> Bernie does need help. <laughs> Every dollar helps. <laughs> Thank you, though, guy. I love it. You know, I do. So, patreon.com slash fan of history. Got it. And the Facebook page is fan of history. See you next time, Dan. See you next time. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon, patreon.com slash fanofhistory. Just a dollar an episode would help us out. Thanks, and see you next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.